My Mother, The Person and the Patient is an original podcast written and hosted by me, Fortuna Cuso. This podcast is about my mother, Timira Abdusamid Muhammad, Ayaya we call her, and that's the Somali word for grandmother, and her great-grandchildren call her Ayaya too, and that is their way of saying great-grandmother. We live in a society where individual autonomy, individual privacy is paramount to our rights. And I agree with that. We all need to have privacy and space for us so we can maintain dignity. We can maintain agency. But that being said, nobody exists on an island all on their own. Everybody needs support. Everybody needs guidance. If you are being convinced you are on your own and do not let anybody in, you're being misled. I just want you to know that. And that doesn't mean you're letting everybody in. Some people might have to be kept out. Some people might have to be removed out of your space, out of your presence, so you can maintain peace, dignity, and agency for yourself. But I argue that we all need that one person, those two people, that group of people that would be there for us in one way or another. That could be somebody who's there for you financially to support you, maybe a parent, maybe a guardian, or that could be somebody who is advocate for you to speak for you when you cannot speak for yourself. When you look at my situation, I am a caregiver to my mother, and I take care of all her affairs. I wish I didn't have to, but at this point, for the last 11 years, she needed me to do that. But in order for me to do that legally, my mother had to consent to that when she was cognitively available. She had to sign off a power of attorney so I can act on her behalf. She had to give me consent for her medical records for all her care providers. So when she stopped being cognitively able to speak for herself, I could be there for her in her stead and speak for her and arrange all her care. That is the same thing for myself. I am healthy 55-year-old woman, but I still have a power of attorney that my children can speak for me when I cannot speak for myself. And I have a consent for my children to access my medical record, to give advice, to hear what's happened on my stead. That doesn't mean my children are going in and doing things while I'm here cognitively, emotionally, and physically able to take care of my affairs. But the moment that's not possible, then my children would not need any more of begging and bartering and trying to get 
access to my personal files, to my medical files, to my financial files in order for them to help me out. Just the same way, I wasn't getting into my mother's affairs. I wasn't getting into her bank uh, statement. My mother doesn't speak English. I was merely her interpreter until she cognitively declined to a point where she couldn't direct any of her care. So I bring that to your attention to remind you, if you are in an abusive relationship, it's very important for you to let somebody in that one person that will look out for you, two people that would look out for you, give them a consent, make sure you have power of attorney, make sure they can jump in when you cannot speak for yourself. In an abusive relationship where you are too scared, too traumatized, too overwhelmed to be able to do the right thing for yourself or to speak for yourself, then you have somebody that can get in there and say, this is what's going on. And you can make your consent to the level that Maybe the person doesn't need to know what you had said, what you had shared with this person, but they can add to information. They can inquire about it. So talk to your medical care providers and make sure you have somebody in your corner. If you do not need it today, still have that somebody in your corner tomorrow when you need that person, when you cannot advocate for yourself, when you cannot do things that need to be done, whether that is you need somebody to call the doctor and to tell them how you're feeling, or you need somebody that can talk to your doctor and tell them this is what's happening to this person. Add that to it. So make sure you surround yourself with an ally. And please do not buy into this narrative that says you have to do it all of it on your own. Because trust me, nobody does it on their own. It's very important that you take the individual liberties that you have, your privacy, your dignity, your own space, hold on to that. But at the same time, create an ally that could help you when you need it the most, when you cannot do it for yourself. So I'm realizing it's very important for each and every one of us to know when we can do it ourselves and when we need somebody else to come in and help us do it or do it in our stead. And that has made all the difference. When you listen to how we arrived at my mother's diagnosis and what followed, it's so easy to see her just as the patient, to see her as nothing more than the disease that reduced her to shell of her old self. But I want also to tell you about my mother, the person, the fierce woman that told her stories unapologetically, celebrating the beautiful parts and harsh realities equally. I want to share with you the stories she told us about her life as a girl growing up in a small village, the tales that marked her adulthood. I want to share with you all her losses 
and the ultimate winnings. The following chapter is one of those stories reconstructed from my childhood memory. Timura admired everything about the couples in this group, the way men and women moved about the place as if equality was inherently theirs. He is a good man, your husband. Timiro told her cousin six months after her arrival, all of them are. That was true. The husbands treated their wives with so much respect. Even the three without wives showed deep respect for her and other women. They seemed to behave so well without expecting anything in return, which intrigued Timiro. There is plenty of men like that, Dahaba said. I'd see none like that. She knew her father was a good man. He'd never found fault with her mother, even when she'd admitted to her shortcomings. It outlined his kindness. Even Nietzsche Cain wasn't evil if you look beyond him marrying a child. He didn't raise his voice against her, let alone a hand. There is a good man that's been asking about you. Asking about me? Timilo liked hearing that. But the feeling that someone was interested in her only lasted a second or two. She was cursed, was she not? I am too broken. The admission hit Timira hard. Even after almost seven years since she left Hassan, no good man would want to marry me, no more than I would agree to marry him. We are all broken in our way, Dahabu said. Timira couldn't fathom anyone in the Habis group being nothing but perfect. Not one woman in the group feared for her safety. And the men, the men were remarkable creatures. They seemed to cherish their wives instead of beating them like she had had to endure. Not like me, Timira said. When I lifted the elder's cursed finger, I placed it on my neck like a noose. That is not true, and you know it. Dahaba looked up from the dishes she was washing. You just ended up with a bad end of the bushel. Is there a good end of the bushel? Yes, and I have one on hand, Dahaba said. Timira watched her cousin's smile start from the side of her mouth and spread until her entire face was alight. Not that I'm looking, Timira added. Not right now, anyway. She attempted to reel the heaven back from the plan she sensed was forming in her cousin's mind. All I need is work, the mm, heaven said. Timira knew that was it. Set, light, launch. It was too late. The heaven wouldn't be deterred. Dahaba put her plan in motion at the end of the group's next gatherings, only two days after her discussion with Timiro. The man I was telling you about, 
Her cousin's eyes danced with excitement, wants to meet you. They have a pulled Timiro into the kitchen after most guests had left the party. He's waiting outside with my husband. As I said, I don't want to get married. He is a good man. They have moved closer to Timiro and lowered her voice to a whisper. You should speak to him at least. I should do no such thing. Timiro refused to meet him, not because she suspected the man's character. She rejected the suggestion out of hand because she did not want to infect him with her curse. All men are not the same. Her cousin said when Timiro rejected the proposal to speak with him for the fifth time. Alone with her cousin in the house, after Dahab's husband went to work, Timiro spoke openly. I lost two marriages and two children. She spoke fast, struggling to catch her breath. Three children, if you count the baby I killed. Timiro, you killed no one and lost nothing. Dahab said, you simply got a bad deal. I'm not going to speak to a man, let alone meet him. Timiro threatened to leave Dahabu's house if her cousin didn't stop pushing her to marry him. That did the trick. Dahabu stopped. But sometimes, Timiro could tell her cousin wanted to bring the subject up. It was written all over her face. But she didn't want the risk of Timiro's threat materializing. With Dahabu's husband's help, Timiro acquired the job at a bakery about a 30-minute walk from their house. The work was hard. Her mother's old shawl wrapped tight around her. Timiro walked under the purple light of the breaking dawn while most of the city slept. Exhaustion set in even before she left the bakery 12 hours later. But she endured it, for the ache in her bones was nothing compared to the relentless barrage of guilt that filled her mind. Guess who came back today? That's how Dehaba approached the subject of matchmaking. It usually happened after supper. Timiro, Dehaba, and Nur would sit in the courtyard and chat about the daily happenings of their lives but Dahaba would always segue into the topic. She would mention the man without really mentioning him. Who? Noor would always ask the questions. Timida knew where the discussion between Noor and Dahaba would go. They would go back and forth, question and answer without Timido saying a word. Muhammad, her cousin spoke slowly, carefully, as if trying not to burst through the new crack she saw in Timiro's resolve to avoid relationships. The habit must have gained courage because Timiro stopped darting out of the room like she had done all the other times her cousin had brought up the subject. She had listened as she continued to rub hot oil on her aching feet. Could you just meet him? You don't have to commit to anything. The habit spoke faster now as if she wanted to have all her words out before Timiro interrupted her. Her words fell on one another with the excitement she tried to contain. I told him, Dehaba said, I made it clear to him that 
all I might get you to do is speak to him once. She paused here, perhaps to see if Timiro would object. She didn't. He'd been asking about you from the first day. She went on. If you don't want to see him after the first time, he promised to go away and never to bother you again. Another pause. This one was much longer than the first one. Dahaba and her husband stared at Timiro expectantly. One time, she finally broke the silence that sat with them, heavy and unmoving. Next Friday, when I'm off work, great, the meeting was set. Timira turned this meeting over in her head since she gave Dahaba the go-ahead four days ago. Her cousin ushered her out of the kitchen where she waited while Dahaba opened the door and let the man in the sitting room. This is my cousin Timiro. Dahaba introduced her even though Timiro and the man had been acquainted for months as a member of the group. And this is Mohammed, a good friend. She pointed at the man and smiled before leaving the room. Sitting across from the man in her cousin's sitting room, Timira wondered what she'd expected to see when she took the seat before him. He was over six feet tall. His long sleeve flannel shirt wasn't tucked in his khaki pants like she'd seen him dress for their gatherings. His long jawline, Smooth skin and pale white teeth gave his face rugged good looks. A long moment passed before either of them said anything. On her part, she didn't know how these things worked. Her father and elder talked, planned, and negotiated in her last two unions. The contract in those two marriages were between her tribe and the man's tribe. All she had to do was show up for the reception. I've been divorced twice. Timira looked at him directly when she said that. She was determined to gauge his reaction. And I had three children. He said nothing. No alarm on his face, including the one I killed. Killed? Mohammed sounded alarmed. Killed how? This was the proper reaction, she thought to herself. It was essential to know how he felt before things moved any further. I prayed to be freed from the responsibility of motherhood. The memory of her yearning to play with her friends overwhelmed her, and she gasped. I wanted to be a child more than I wanted to be a mother. Thirteen years had passed since she lost the baby. The first of many losses, but the pain was so close to the surface. The ache was raw in her gut, and she could taste it as if the failure had occurred within that day. The Habu said you were 15 when your son died. Timira nodded. He added nothing more, as if mentioning her age was the answer to all that happened. I walked out on my two children, too. She wanted to give him her awful background that no one in their group seemed to inquire about, having seen them for the last six years. 
The admission made her stomach rise to her throat, and she hated divulging it. But he had the right to know she lacked the commitment other mothers possessed, other women she'd seen them, heard them talk about tucking their pains so deep, all for the sake of their children. Unlike her, the desire to keep their family together overrode their sense of self-preservation. Timura recounted the details of her leaving her first marriage. She reiterated the gasp that rang out of the mouth of everyone in the village square when she took the elder's cursed finger. She shared with him her determination to get out of her marriage despite the calamity the elder promised would befell on her in breaking up her family. Timiro left nothing out of her past, including giving up her children to get out of her marriage to Hassan. At the end of her sordid tale, Mohammed turned to her with eyes that seemed to bear no judgment. I'm sorry you have gone through that. Sorry? Why are you sorry? Because that must have been terrible for you. I don't want to get married ever again. Timur latched onto the first thought that came to her. Why did she say that? Mohammed hadn't even asked her to marry him. She didn't even know his family name or tribe. If Timur's out-of-place question had bothered him, Mohammed didn't show it. I don't have a mother, he said without missing a beat. She died when I was nine, and my father before her when I was two. Both gone? Timira's heart leapt out of her chest and broke for him. She was carrying the weight of her losses around her waist with the notion that no one had it harder than she. But to lose both parents at such a young age was incomprehensible. Unlike her, Mohammed stood tall after double the loss. I am so sorry. Thank you, he said, and laced his fingers together. You are a lucky woman to have two children, even if you are not with them now. His face wore a sorrow she couldn't identify. No one can separate a mother from her children forever. Lucky? Yes, he said. I'm 34 years old with no children, wife, or land. His voice cracked and he swallowed hard. It was Timur's turn to listen. Many girls do not want to marry a man without a mother, let alone one without both parents. He twisted his laced fingers tight, as if the words were erupting from deep within without his consent. I have no father to vouch for me, no mother to help rear my children. Timira saw him flinch when he said this last part as if the words had slapped him. No hefty dowry to ask any girl's hand in marriage. Timira sat there for an entire hour as Mohammed shared the tale of his life with her, the story of his father's sudden and unexpected death. I don't even remember what he looked like, he said. He told her it happened shortly before his second birth year. Six months later, his mother is married to his uncle. 
as it was the tradition for a man to take his brother's widow to protect the children and the land, seemed to Timur equally painful for Muhammad. She gave him a son but died two years later during childbirth. Timur saw him swallow harder this time. His Aramis apple popped up and down. I was barely nine when my mother died an hour after delivering my sister, stillborn. Despite the tragedy, Timur noticed Muhammad didn't seem filled with resentment like she was. I am so sorry. Timur and Muhammad sat there and talked about anything and everything for hours as the darkening night settled around them. Timur saw him to the door and closed it behind him. The house was eerily quiet, but that only lasted until the latch clicked in place. The Havo was in the room by the time Timur turned around. Please tell her cousin took the seat Muhammad had just vacated. I thought you were asleep. Go to bed before I hear the details of your night? Timur and her cousin talked. The more she shared, the stronger the connection she'd felt while in Muhammad's company grew. It wasn't only the attraction, even though he was a sight to behold that drew her in. The shared experience of loss and the heartache formed an iron-solid foundation for their connection. I wouldn't have introduced him to you if I didn't see the potential. The habit patted herself on the back. I've been around too long. You certainly have been, Timira said, and hugged her cousin. My mother, the person and the patient can be found in Amazon Music, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to follow, like, and share, and join me next week as I share with you another episode of my mother's journey as both the person and the patient. Thank you.